to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 35. Last week, I covered the mountains Jerizim and Ebel, where the Israelites were told by Moses to celebrate after crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm circling back a little bit. Why? Well, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that I'd previously covered Gilgal, but in the weeks since, I went back and looked, and I had not. So, I'll start this episode there and continue pressing through the Old Testament. And with that, let's get started. The first mention in the Old Testament of Gilgal is in Deuteronomy 11. Here, Moses tells the Israelites that after they cross the Jordan into Canaan, they are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings, and on Mount Ebel the curses. These mountains are across the Jordan westward, toward the setting sun, near the great trees of Morah, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgal. All of that, when taken together, tells us that Gilgal is near the mountains in the Arabah desert. It doesn't get mentioned again until the book of Joshua. And in that book, we're given a bit more detail on the place. It was where the Israelites encamped after crossing the Jordan. The same day they crossed the river, God told Joshua to select twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, Take twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood, carry them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. And that's how the twelve stones came to Gilgal. It's also how Gilgal got its name, which translates to the Circle of Stones. Later in that same chapter, towards the end, we're given a slightly more specific location for this place, on the east border of Jericho. Later in the book of Joshua, and in the story I covered a while back, the Gibeonites approached Joshua and the Israelites while they were at Gilgal to make a treaty with them. This was done under a false pretense when they lied about where they were from. The Israelites apparently camped at Gilgal for a while, as the next few stories are about what they did while they were there, including beginning to defeat the various peoples and tribes in Canaan. This would include a king of Gilgal, mentioned in Joshua as being defeated by the Israelites. What's unclear is why it took up until this point in the book of Joshua for this king, and the people he led, to get mentioned. After the Israelites settled in the region, and as the tribes were allotted their various territories, Gilgal would end up on the border between Judah and Benjamin. The book of Judges mentions sculptured stones being located at Gilgal, probably in addition to the stones placed there by the Israelites on their first evening in Canaan. The prophet Samuel would go there once a year as he was making the rounds of what's called his annual circuit. And, at least to him, it was a significant location, as when it was decided Saul would rule over them, Samuel told the people, Let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all of the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king. At Gilgal, they sacrificed offerings of well-being before the Lord, and there Saul and all the Israelites rejoiced greatly. 
This was also likely at the place of the Twelve Stones. Through all of his exploits as king, Saul would pass through Gilgal many times. David would also travel through there, including on his return to Jerusalem, after the death of his rebelling son Absalom. In the book of 2 Kings, Gilgal is said to be the home of two well-known prophets. The text tells us that Elijah and Elisha came from Gilgal to Bethel, and then went to Jericho and to the Jordan. Some interpret this as meaning Gilgal was near Bethel and not Jericho. Chronicles places it at the same location. The only way to make this work is if there is a different Gilgal. And if Gilgal does simply mean a circle of stones, then it's possible there was a different circle of stones at a different place. If it was at a different place, then some think the second Gilgal is the modern village of Jajulia, which is about 7 miles, 11 kilometers north of Bethel. These two different places, the potential two different Gilgals, are about 40 miles, 65 kilometers apart, and that's as the crow flies. Travel in that era would have been further, as the land between the two is mountainous, with winding paths. What is consistent throughout most of the Old Testament is that Gilgal was considered a particularly holy place. The first king crowned there, prophets coming from there, or at least passing through. Even if there were two different places that shared the same name. Overall, it's thought, based mostly on these two distant places, that in the beginning, Gilgal was this one place on the west bank of the Jordan, where the Israelites camped and set up the stones. But as they spread out throughout Canaan, they set up a second, and maybe even more circles of stones. And since the word meant the shape, Gilgal was the natural name for all of them. More on that in a second. In Hosea 9, it's said that Israel's sin began at Gilgal. What's not clear is if this was meant to be taken literally, as they really did begin sinning there, or if it's more figurative, and they were sinful from when they first crossed the Jordan. The term Gilgal is believed by modern archaeologists to refer to a type of structure, which may then receive additional clarifying names, like Gilgal by the Terebinth of Mora, or Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. Maybe an easier explanation is that, at least in these two cases, the place isn't simply referred to as Gilgal, but is followed up with a clarifying phrase, by the oaks, or near Jericho. They support this belief by pointing to similar stone circles that have been uncovered, but typically only in the Jordan River Valley and the Samaritan Mountains on the edge of the desert. In these locations, pottery shards have also been uncovered, and these date to the period just after the Israelites crossed the Jordan and the short period of the judges that followed, between about the 12th and 11th centuries BC. These stone circles are typically found on the lower slopes of a hill and tend to have the stones arranged in a pattern that roughly resembles a footprint, or perhaps an elongated oval. They appear to have been set up as an outdoor, maybe a temporary structure, and were not built inside of any sort of enclosure. 
The thought is that the Israelites worshipped here until they permanently settled in the tribally allocated land. When that happened, they likely spread the worship out too. There have been a few parallels and contrasts drawn. Some see the footprint shape arrangement as similar to what archaeologists occasionally run across in Egypt, but the placement of the stones on the lower portion of hills was in contrast to the Canaanite practice of placing their idols and worshipping on hilltops in a high place. Finally, in the outside record, the Koine Greek equivalent word appears on the Madaba map. I've mentioned this map a few times, but it's been a while. It's a floor mosaic in the early Byzantine church of St. George in Madaba, Jordan, with the tiles laid in the 6th century AD. Parts of the mosaic contain the oldest surviving original cartographic depiction of the Holy Land, and especially Jerusalem. And that's it for Gilgal. Moving along. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is a reiteration of the dietary laws the people have previously been given, but no new people, places, or things are introduced. 13 is similar, with Moses re-warning the people about the consequences of worshipping idols. And still, no new things. 14 circles back to the dietary restrictions in a word on tithing, with a bit of an economic update. Previously, as the Israelites wandered, they were in close proximity to the tabernacle, Transporting the literal fruits of their labors, grain, livestock, and the like was easy. But now Moses is making accommodation for when the tribes spread out all over Canaan. When this happens, in his words, he tells them, If, when the Lord your God has blessed you, the distance is so great that you are unable to transport it, because the place where the Lord your God will choose to set his name is too far away from you, then you may turn it into money. With the money secure in hand, go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Spend the money for whatever you wish, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatever you desire. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your household rejoicing together. To be clear, this isn't the first mention of money in the Bible. That occurred way back in Genesis 17, when God is giving Abraham religious instructions. It isn't even the first time money is mentioned in a religious context. That was in Exodus. But it does show that Moses was thinking through how the religious rites and traditions would have to be adjusted as the people grew in number and spread out over a great area. Other than that, there really isn't anything new to cover in chapter 14. 15 continues with Moses reiterating the law to the people and continuing in a sort of economic sense. Debts are forgiven after seven years, but only if the debtor is a fellow Israelite. Do not borrow from foreign countries, but feel free to lend to them. That way, the Israelites can rule over the foreign kingdoms, but will never be in debt to them. Treat your neighbors well, especially if they are in need. Foreign slaves are fine, but a fellow Hebrew, if they are in debt to you, can be taken in as a slave, really more of an indentured servant, and must be freed after seven years. 
unless they make the decision to remain. Then there's more on livestock offerings, and that's the chapter, moving along. 16 brings more reiteration of the laws of the previous Pentateuch books, this time about Passover, the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Booths. The chapter wraps up with a few clarifications of other laws. Judges are to be appointed to administer justice, but no bribing is allowed. Then, no trees planted as a sacred pole beside the altar, and no stone pillar. God hates both of these. Once again, these were very specific and likely mentioned by Moses and recorded so that we could see them thousands of years later, because something happened. And that's where I come in, trying to give some context to the seeming random sentence, at least as much context as I can discern from the inside and outside records. So, in this effort, I'll spend a couple of minutes on what these ancient poles were, at least the little that we know. But before that, a sidebar, a slightly different one. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are chock full of both figurative and literal stories. The literal ones, like the years of wandering, are the tell of the Canaanite wooden poles are easier to understand. But still, we're thousands of years separated from those events and in need of context to understand what these things were and what they could possibly mean to us. The figurative stories are even more so. And when I bring up that parts of the Bible are figurative, I usually elicit an argument until I point out the parables. These are completely figurative, but set in a context the people hearing them firsthand could understand. But figurative language is difficult to understand without a firm footing in the context it's being told. And that's one of the foremost reasons I decided to do this podcast. How much more does the story of the Good Samaritan mean when you understand that the audience hearing it for the first time knew of the Samaritans? And the Jewish people in the audience, including the disciples, have been taught from their first day on earth that the Samaritans may at one time had been their brothers, but now they were their enemies. But in the parable, if they could do good, then everyone could. And there was another underlying message. They were under God's grace, too. But here we sit about as far removed from that context as we can imagine. And hearing that a Samaritan, who we really know nothing about, can be a good person, much of that message would get lost. So, I tell of the Samaritans, who they were, and why they didn't get along with the Jewish people, how deep that bad blood was, and how they are still there, less than a thousand of them, living at the foot of Mount Gerizim today. My point is, context matters for understanding. That sidebar done, and back in Deuteronomy, the text reads, You shall not plant any tree as a sacred pole beside the altar that you make for the Lord your God, nor shall you set up a stone pillar, things that the Lord your God hates. At least in the New Revised Standard Version, the NIV calls the pole a wooden Asherah pole, 
while the King James is much less specific than those two versions, reading, Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar. Keep in mind that, and like I covered in the very beginning of the podcast, in the episodes in chapter 1, for the most part, all three translations of the Bible that I use for the podcast use essentially the same source Hebrew text and are just translated differently into our modern English. The differences, especially between the NIV and New Revised Standard, since they were done within years of each other and translated into the same version of English, well, those differences are primarily due to the choices of the translators. In this case, it seems the NIV chose to be more specific with the use of the word Asherah, which gives me something to explore. An Asherah pole is either a sacred tree or a wooden pole that was planted or erected near Canaanite religious locations. And this is why the Israelites were told not to put them near the altar. Doing so would be to conflate Canaanite religious practices with Hebrew ones. In the Canaanite tradition, these poles were set up to honor the Ugaritic mother deity Asherah, the companion of their supreme male deity El. Asherim poles, the plural of Asherah, are mentioned in the Hebrew Bible in the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah. And, as you would correctly suspect, the actual mentions vary by translation, just like what is seen in Deuteronomy. Whichever the translation, it's commonly viewed as a Canaanite icon, either worshipped directly or as a representation of the head female deity of their pantheon. The general understanding is that they were made from wood, as the translations suggest. Judges 6 is a bit more direct when we're told that the townspeople rose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was struck down, and the sacred pole beside it was cut down. It would be hard to cut down anything made of something other than wood. The next sentence provides even more clarity with the wood being used for the fire of a burnt offering. Of course, the Israelite people frequently strayed from the law. 2 Kings 21 tells us of the things King Manasseh did when he ruled over Judah. Among many other incidents, he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made a sacred pole and the high places would be the Canaanite worship sites that tended to be on the top of hills. A literal high place. He also had a carved image of Asherah placed in the temple. Two chapters later, King Josiah enacted religious reforms that included commanding the high priest, Hilkiah, along with other priests, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah. He had these idols burned outside of Jerusalem, then had their ashes carried to Bethel. Since they would burn, then produce ashes, these idols were wooden too. Which gets me to the outside record. And there's a problem. And that's that these poles were wooden. And wood really doesn't survive for the 3,000 plus years that have passed since the Israelites crossed the Jordan. 
The easy explanation is that whatever poles were erected, even if they survived burning, would have turned to dust long before archaeologists started digging in the area. There are suggestions, though with limited to no physical evidence, but it is suggested that such poles were common in even Hebrew houses during the period. And that isn't as controversial as it initially seems. If the king felt comfortable erecting the pole in the temple, then at least some of the people felt the same about placing them in their houses. Overall, though, at least as of today, that's little more than archaeological speculations. And that's all I have for Asherah poles, groves, and the like. Moving along. All of this gets me to Deuteronomy 17. Don't sacrifice defective livestock. Stone Israelites who worship false gods. Moses gives authority to priests and judges to render judgment, and the people must follow whatever judgment is rendered. Otherwise, they will face the death penalty too. Then a bit of foreshadowing about what will happen when Saul becomes king. Moses sets into place the rules that an Israelite king must follow. Essentially, that he is not above the law of the land and cannot unjustly enrich himself. At the end of these rules is a promise that if he follows these rules, he and his descendants will reign long over his kingdom in Israel. We know how that turned out. With Saul's death, his son Ishbosheth became king, but proved little more than a historical speed bump to Saul's son-in-law David taking the throne. There will be much more on this in a later episode, and that's chapter 17. I'm wrapping up this episode with Deuteronomy 18, having made a decent amount of progress through the book. So it goes when you encounter a section of the text that's largely a reiteration of things previously said and done, and covered. Moses tells the people of the sacrifices made by the tribe of Levi, who would become the priest. They were not being allotted land, but given cities throughout the territory. Because of this, many of the offerings, sacrifices, and tithes would go to them so they could live. The middle part of the chapter touches on things we rarely consider, but since Moses brought it up, it must have been relevant to them. The most glaring item are child sacrifices. Just because the Canaanites do it doesn't mean they can. There's much more to this, and I'll get into it in the next episode. Just be forewarned, it's very disturbing, but it's there and Moses thought the people needed to be explicitly told not to do it. In my mind, that means it was likely very common, and he was worried the people would fall into the same trap that the Canaanites had. And that's enough about that for now. Also in this chapter, Moses warns the people to stay away from soothsayers, sorcerers, spellcasters, people who claim they can consult the dead, among many others. The chapter wraps up with Moses telling the people that after him, God will raise up a prophet, and when he does, they should listen to him. He then poses a rhetorical question. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a word that the Lord has not spoken? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, 
but the thing does not take place are proved true. He then provides a rhetorical answer. If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place are proved true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be frightened by it. Seems simple enough. Moses doesn't tell them when this will be, or essentially anything else about this forthcoming prophet, except that he will not speak in the name of other deities, and that he will only speak what God tells him to. If he does not, then he will die. And that's it for chapter 18 and this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with this one thing I skipped over this week and then press forward. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.